Well, if you'd keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 15. If you're new with us, we've been working our way through this book, and, and uh, we've come to the, uh, the climax of, uh, of the book today, really, the, the crucifixion. From the day Jesus was born, he has been heading towards this moment. He was born for the very purpose of dying. He came into this world to sacrifice his life. This is what Jesus has been explaining to his disciples as they've been on this journey with him towards Jerusalem. He's been explaining that although he is the Christ, the the anointed Messiah, King they've been waiting for, he must die. In fact, he told them it very clearly in chapter 8, verse 31. He said to them, after Peter had just confessed him as the Christ, he said, yes, and the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and be killed. And they argued with him about it. And then in 1045, he said this, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now that moment, this moment has come. In this text, Jesus meets his destiny. He fulfills his plan. He is killed. He goes to the cross and gives his life. And I think the, uh, the simple danger for us this morning as we come to this passage is familiarity. We know this story pretty well. Like the birth narratives, it's something we've heard year after year, especially if we've grown up in church. We've heard it in youth group. We've heard it in Sunday school. Jesus dying on the cross. We remember it in communion. We may even have a a piece of jewelry that reminds us of his death, his crucifixion. And I think because of this, we can kind of assume that we, we know it. We kind of know everything in the story. And we can kind of tune out when we come to it. And, uh, and because of that, we, we don't hear it with fresh ears. We don't get a chance to grow through it if we come to it assuming we got it. We don't get a chance to be convicted and appreciate our salvation again in this story. So the goal this morning is for us to kind of focus in and take a fresh look at the cross. Now I want to do this by employing the the IMC, Identity Mission Call, that, that we talked about from the very beginning of this book. When we started this series in the summer, I said, hey, let's Take a look at Mark, and in each section, let's ask, what does this teach us about Jesus' identity? What does this teach us about his mission? What, is te- what does this teach us about his call? What he expects from his people? And if we do that, if we ask those questions all the way through, we will grow so much and learn so much. And we have been doing that, and it's been quite rich, hasn't it? We've seen, as we've asked the question of Jesus' identity, we've seen him demonstrate himself as as God's king, casting out 
demons with authority and calming storms with his word and curing the diseased, calling back the dead. We've seen the incredible kingly authority of Jesus in these stories. We've seen him as the shepherd leading his people and feeding them in the desert with his word and with the bread of God. We've seen him as the son of man, that great judge out of the book of Daniel, that great king of all the nations who will judge the nations. We've seen him as he stands and judge, judges the temple and curses it with, as with the fig tree. We've seen him as the lamb of God who's laying down his life, who's celebrating the Passover and saying, this body is broken for you. We've seen him on mission, right? We've seen what his very mission is as he heals and cleanses and offers forgiveness. Remember the story of the paralytic? What did that paralytic really need? He needed forgiveness. And he's restoring people to life. And we've seen his call as he's called people to follow him. And the disciples have repented and believed and, and left everything to follow him on mission. And now in this final moment, this climactic event of the cross, I think we see this all come together in a new depth. So let's look at it and let's consider, first of all, his identity. What does this text, this scene of his crucifixion, teach us about who he really is? What more does it add? to our understanding of Jesus. I mean, you might say at an obvious level, well, it shows him as the, the crucified one. Yes. It shows him as the suffering servant. Yes, it does. It shows him as the forsaken one. That's true. But what's it, what's it all about? What's it demonstrating as Jesus dies on the cross? Well, I want to say... It's all about him as our ransom. That's what it's about. It's actually not showing him so much as king. We'll see that in his resurrection, right? It's not showing him as the conqueror of death. We'll see that in the res resurrection. It's showing the moment of the ransom. It's showing him as the cost payer. It's showing us what that actually means to bear our sin, to pay the price of our release. Have you ever thought about that? What does it mean for Jesus to actually pay the cost? What's the actual cost? Well, we see it here in this scene. We see it in the suffering of this scene, and we see it, first of all, in physical suffering, don't we? We can't miss that in the crucifixion scene. It's a scene of physical suffering. At the beginning of our text, Jesus is enduring his third beating in about 24 hours. First, we saw last week, after a fraudulent circus of, of, of the Sanhedrin you know, council trying to convict him, there was nothing to convict him of. What did they do? They put a bag on his head and started beating him like the mob. Then he's brought before Pilate, who pronounces him innocent, 
But to please the crowd, he has him beaten again. And it says he has him scourged. That's that whip Jay talked about that has glass and metal embedded into all its lashes so it tears the flesh. People would die just from being scourged. And now the soldiers who are escorting him to the cross to put a crown, they, they put a crown of, of thorns on his crushed, bloodied skull so that as they're beating him, it would smash the thorn into his wounds. Look at verse 18. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. At this point, he is so weakened, and his body is so wrecked, that verse 21 tells us that, that he had to comp- they had to compel a passerby to pick up the cross beam that they were having him carry, and carry it for him to the place of the skull, to Golgotha. And then we find in verse 24 this simple sentence from Mark. It says, there they crucified him. It's funny because it's just one sentence. It's it's almost shockingly brief and non-descriptive. And they crucified him. One commentator was saying that's because the original readers knew exactly what this meant. They knew that it meant that Jesus endured the most torturous and drawn-out form of capital punishment the Romans had devised. They knew that his hands were nailed to a crossbeam, which was then hoisted on to a horizontal or a, a vertical post, and his feet were nailed so that he would die slowly, trying to lift himself up on those wounds just to get a breath. It was a torturous, long, excruciating way to die. The Romans had mastered torturous murder so that people wouldn't defy Rome. But here's the most amazing thing in this moment. Look at verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Jesus wants to feel it. You see, someone along the road offered him this wine mixed with myrrh, but he refused it. Do you know what that is? It's basically a narcotic. It's a numbing medicine. It's a pain blocker. But Jesus wouldn't take it. Why is that? Why does Jesus have to suffer like this? And why does he choose to feel all of it? To experience it to its fullest? I never understood this. Yes, the penalty for sin is death. So for Jesus to pay for our sins, I was, as I grew up, I learned that, that he needed to die in our place. I get that. But there's a lot of ways he could have died. What about a good, clean beheading? The Romans practiced that. That seems like lights out, done, 
What about that? What about an arrow shot through the heart? That would end you pretty quick. The Romans even practiced death by strangulation, death by being thrown off a cliff, even poisoning. Why such a horrible suffering death? We see, I didn't understand the ransom. I didn't understand the true cost of sin that he had to pay. The cost of my sin, the cost of your sin. Because physical suffering is part of the cost. Because sin brought physical suffering into this world. Adam and Eve did not endure this kind of suffering. The world was perfect. It was the breach of sin that warped this good world so that it started groaning and it was broken and our physical bodies are struggling in pain. Sin brought leprosy and heart defects and kidney stones and cancer and pandemics and famine and disaster and war and people torturing and murdering each other. Sin brought that. Our sin. All the physical suffering in this world is part of the cost of sin and Jesus is paying for it all for us. He's giving his divine, pure, sinless life to pay the full price, the suffering price of our sin. This is why Revelation 21 can promise a heaven where there's no more tears. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. But his suffering, as we know, is more than physical here, isn't it? It's actually also kind of relational and social, isn't it? Note the emphasis here on the humiliation and shame of the cross. Jesus is spat on and mocked he is paraded through the town for everyone to jeer at him and wag their heads in derision right out of Psalm 22, fulfilling the prophecy. And note the nakedness. In verse 24, we are told that the soldiers are dividing up and gambling over Jesus' clothes. If you read John, it talks specifically about the clothes and the tunics, everything. I know we love to, when we have a picture of Jesus on the cross, he always has a little loincloth on. No. He was stripped completely bare, exposed. It was part of the total humiliation, the shame of nakedness, which was particularly potent for a Jew. It was degrading. Such a person was not to be even looked upon. And you know, it's interesting, we can trace this shame of nakedness all the way back to the Garden of Eden, can't we? It was when they sinned, and they realized they were standing before another person who was no longer pure, a person who was sinful, that they hid themselves in shame, that isolation and division came. Even when God came to the Garden and Adam said, I heard you coming and I hid myself because of my nakedness. This is the cost of sin. It brings relational 
suffering, isolation, where intimacy is destroyed, humiliation and shame, a distancing, a distrust, leading to hate and derision and dishonor and division. Think of all the brokenness, all the relational brokenness and shame in our world. Think of all the broken marriages. Think of the fact that most murders are perpetuated by someone very close to that other person. Think of all the bitterness and jealousy. Think of all the racism and hatred. Think of the religious persecution, the genocide, the war. Think of the relationships in your own life that have caused you such pain. It's because of sin, our sin. And Jesus is taking it. He's paying for it at the cross. It's part of the ransom. He's paying for it so he can restore us back into true, pure, shameless, honest, real relationships this way because things are made right this way. We're in union with our Creator, Father, and we're able to be restored with each other. But of course, by far the most intense suffering cost Jesus is enduring in this moment is spiritual. Look at verse 33. Second, I don't know if it's verse 33. It's not verse 33. Look at verse, yeah, 33, excuse me. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus was dying on the cross, it went pitch dark at noon. For three hours, a deep darkness fell on the land. My friends, this is an echo all the way back to Exodus when God saved his people out of Egypt, when the death angel was come to bring judgment, and only those who put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost would be saved from the judgment of the death angel. Just before that angel came, the ninth plague was what? Complete darkness. So Jesus is now absorbing the judgment of God the ultimate punishment of God, the cost of our sin, which is what? What is the ultimate cost? What does he cry out in this moment? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's forsakenness. He cries out, Daddy, Father, have you forsaken me? And it's not really a question. It's a statement Jesus is quoting out of Psalm 22, the prediction of the great Messiah King who would be forsaken by God. This is the fulfillment. This is the moment. The beloved son is being forsaken by his Abba, by his Father. As Jesus takes on the sin of the world 
his holy, perfect, pure father turns his back on him, separates from him relationally. Jesus is forsaken by God. Do you know what the the other word for this is in the Bible? Hell. That's the word for it. You see, our God is holy and pure. He cannot even look on sin. So if we die in our sin, having rejected him, we cannot enter his holy presence, his pure heaven. We are rather cast from his relational presence forever. We are forsaken by him. It's called hell, and it's terrible. Everything good in this world comes from being in God's gracious presence, from sunshine to kindness to physical pleasure, to love. Picture this world with everything good gone because God is no longer with us. So that all you are left with is all the physical pain and suffering, all the relational brokenness, all the hate and injury and isolation and shame and the utter darkness forever. That is hell. It's the ultimate cost of sin. And that's what Jesus is taking at the cross. That's what he's enduring as it goes dark. He's enduring hell for us. He's paying the fullness of the ransom. He's the cost payer. That's what we need to see is in his identity. That's what we need to see who we need to see he is at the cross. And he's the only one who can pay that as the divine, perfect, sinless, pure Son of God. My friends, when we look at the cross with all its physical suffering and social isolation and humiliation and ultimate forsakenness, we're getting a sneak peek of our future if we remain in rejection of God. If we remain in our sin, it will be hell. But we are also seeing the moment of our salvation. Because look at Jesus' mission here. Remember we said we're going to look at his identity? And we're going to look at his mission? What is his mission? Look at verse 37. And Jesus, excuse me, look, yeah, verse 37. And Jesus, utter with a loud cry, breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he breathed in his, his last, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus, in his last breath on the cross, his dying gasp, cries out in a loud voice. And we know from the other gospels that he cries out, shouts, it is finished. And at that moment, what does Mark do here? He actually takes our eyes away from the cross. He takes our eyes all the way across town to the temple, to something that happens simultaneously to Jesus dying on the cross. It's like in a movie when suddenly they switch to this other scene. 
He wants us to see that in that very moment, the curtain in the temple, the one that blocked off the holy place of God, the one that kept sinful man from coming into the holy presence of God lest he die, the one that only once a year a priest would enter behind to offer a sacrifice of atonement for the people, to try and bring some temporary cleansing and forgiveness to help them move closer to God. The curtain that is as thick as a man's hand was torn from top to bottom. In other words, it was a divine ripping, renting of that barrier. You see, Jesus' mission on the cross is admission. He's paying the cost of admission for his people to be able to enter into God's holy presence. He's opening the way to heaven. He took our house so we could have heaven. He gave his life in our place to bring us forgiveness and cleansing that we can come to know our holy God in real relationship forever. It's interesting, there were those in the crowd, according to verse 29, who were taunting Jesus as he was on the cross, and they were saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Well, Jesus stayed on the cross. In doing so, he did destroy the temple, didn't he? He tore it down. This religious means through which the people were trying to pay for their sins by repeated animal sacrifice, but it was never enough. Hebrews 10 tells us that. What could the blood of goats and bulls have ever done to take away sin? Day after day, year after year, the Israelites brought their sacrifices. They did their rituals. But it was never enough because they kept on sinning and it needed more rituals and more sacrifice. And it just kept going and we're still doing it today we call it religion we go to priests we do rituals we offer little sacrifices of good works and we try to earn some forgiveness and favor with god it's called by many names from catholicism to islam and it's never enough jesus ripped that down at the cross when he gave his perfect, pure, divine life in our place and took on hell for us. He paid the full price once and for all. It is finished. It's done. There's nothing more to do. Do you know this this morning? Do you know that all religion is finished? It's over. The price has been paid. The way has been opened to God. So then what do we do? How do we respond? What does Jesus want from us? Well, that's the call. Identity, mission, call. How should we respond to such an incredible salvation won at the cross for us? Well, we see it in that last line that we already read, but let's read it again, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him 
saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Here is this guard, this Roman centurion. He's actually one of the soldiers involved in crucifying Jesus. You bet he's a man who's hardened to death. He's witnessed and perpetrated many crucifixions. But as he watches Jesus die, he's never seen anything like it. And his eyes are suddenly open to the truth. How? I I don't know. It's got to be a miracle of God, right? Perhaps it was when the darkness fell on the land that he started to pay attention. Or the way Jesus willingly endured suffering and ridicule and mocking and shame. And the way he prayed for his persecutors that God would forgive them. I don't know what it was in that. But ultimately it was a miracle of God. As Jesus takes his last dying breath, this man is staring right at him. And he sees the Son of God. He sees that Caesar, who he works for, is not the divine king, son of God, he claims to be. This man is. This is the true king. It's interesting, right? He doesn't see Jesus in some coronation be put on a big throne and go, oh, the the son of God. He sees him dying on the cross. He says, the son of God true king. It's a huge moment in this book. I don't know if you realize this, but the very first verse of this book says this. This is Mark saying his theme statement. The beginning of the gospel, that's the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's telling us, I'm going to tell you about Jesus, who's the Christ, the king, and he's the Son of God. Halfway through the book, Peter says, you're the Christ. He gets the first part. And who's the very first one in the whole book to say, the Son of God? It's this centurion, this Gentile, this man who's crucifying Jesus is the first one to recognize him as the Son of God. Truly, this man is the Son of God. This is the call. If we truly understand the cross, if we truly see who Jesus is as our ransom payer, savior, we should confess Jesus as the son of God, our true king, our Lord. Do you see Jesus this way? Do you see who he really is? Because I want you to note how many people in this scene don't. How many people in this scene who are right there watching the same thing as this centurion don't see it, don't get it. They completely miss it. Think of the religious leaders. The scribes and the elders and the priests, the most religious people of all of them, for them, the cross 
And Jesus' suffering is just proof that he's not God. For God would never endure such a shame and such weakness. It's scandalous. And there are whole religions today that still say that. It's a scandal. God would never do that. There's the soldiers. That as Jesus is dying are are gambling over his clothes. They are just distracted by trying to, to make a buck and have a good time. So they don't even notice. Maybe you're a bit like them. You've just been living life, doing your job, trying to enjoy a little entertainment. You do your work, you watch your TV, you go out to eat, you plan your next trip. And you never thought much about the cross or Jesus. You're actually missing the moment of your salvation. And then there are those in the crowd that see Jesus on the cross. But it's all viewed through their superstition. They hear Jesus cry out, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, speaking Aramaic. He's crying out for God. And they think, oh, he must be saying, Elijah. And they have this superstition about Elijah being the patron saint of sufferers. And maybe Elijah's going to come and save him off the cross. And they're going to stay around to see if this is going to happen. For many today, the cross is is this kind of curious superstition, isn't it? So if you wear one around your neck, especially if it's got the little man on it, it might bring you blessing and protect you from harm. This is all they see. The cross is about that big. And then there's Simon of Cyrene. We kind of read right past him, didn't he? Didn't we? He's, he's the one that has to pick up the cross. He's the one that's forced by the guards, to pick up Jesus' cross and carry it for him. He's involuntarily showing us what it means to follow Jesus, right? Jesus had told his disciples, take up the cross and follow me. But did he see who Jesus really was? Did he get it? We don't know. Maybe he reflects your story. You've... You, you, maybe you feel that all this Christian stuff has kind of been forced on you. You've been dragged to church all your life, maybe even sent to Christian school, and you've told the line. You're doing it. But do you see like this centurion? Do you understand the cost that was paid? Do you get that Jesus gave his perfect, pure life for yours, that he took all your sin and your hell to open the way for you to God? Do you see your ransom payer, Savior? If so, confess Jesus as your God, your King. And you can do that right now if you see it you see him and be saved I'm going to pray now and you can pray that prayer and speak to Jesus right now let's pray Lord Jesus thank you for suffering 
and dying for my sin. Thank you for giving your life for mine. Thank you for taking the punishment I deserve to open the way to heaven for me. Forgive me, I ask. Cleanse me that I may know you and the Father. You are my God and King, my Savior. I give you my life. Help me, I ask, by your spirit to live for you. Amen.